Let's pray together. God, your word is true. Your word is living and active. It's useful for teaching, instructing us, correcting us, rebuking us, all so that we would be more like you. And so, God, I pray that we would submit to your word this morning, that we would listen, that our hearts would be fertile soil. And I pray that the enemy would not be able to snatch one seed this morning in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that has confidence and hope in Christ alone. And it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We'll read in just a moment in verse 18. I do want to warn you. I've been at a conference all week in Louisville, Kentucky. With 12,000 other pastors. And each of the speakers... Most of their sermons were a little over an hour. And so I'm a little, I'm a little excited this morning. Some of you just packed up your stuff and you're walking out of the doors as we speak. No, it was a great time as we spent time together with pastors literally from all over the world. Listening to the word of God and praising the name of Jesus together. I'm thankful for a church that allows us as your shepherds to go and to receive. And so thank you for that. John chapter 15, what we'll see here in these verses, they give us a brief theology on why Christians suffer and experience persecution. They give us God's perspective on the subject of persecution. And for Jesus, persecution isn't something that we can tuck away in a nice category reserved only for those Christians living in oppressive governments or in foreign lands. Throughout the Bible, you'll see that persecution is actually something every Christian should expect to encounter in the path of obedience to Christ. Every single one of us. So I want us to read John fifteen eighteen. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says this to them. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have been they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. These words of Jesus must have jolted the disciples. They just received positive, encouraging words from Jesus right before this. Jesus had been speaking, speaking to them about not letting their hearts be troubled. About the benefits of abiding in Christ. About the love that they're to share between one another. And then all of a sudden, Jesus turns to matters of trial and the world's hatred. Now we have to remember that Jesus isn't going to be physically present with the disciples much longer. He's about to return to his father in glory after his crucifixion. We also need to remember that for the past three years, Jesus has been the focus of the hatred from the world. They've begged him to leave. This man is a blasphemer. He's satanic. He's demonic. He's even been rejected in his own hometown. He was tested over and over and over. And many sought to kill him. So what do you think is going to happen when Jesus returns to the Father and sends the Spirit to empower the disciples to live just like him? Answer is very simple. The world's going to target his disciples. When he returns to his father, he's not going to take his disciples with them. He's leaving them in the world to carry on the mission that Christ has been accomplishing since his arrival on the earth. And the world is going to hate them for it. And so Jesus warns his disciples of the world's hatred. And he warns us as well. Their mission is our mission. And so Jesus prepares them. He prepares us with a few lessons for the mission related to the world's hatred, persecution, and unbelief. And so what do we see in the text of the world's hatred? Number one, the world hates Jesus and those belonging to him. You see in verses 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now we've got to remember what Jesus means here by the world. Throughout John's gospel, the world means this entire moral order standing in opposition against God. You'll see over and over in John that the world refers to as it's referred to as darkness. It's so bent inward on itself that it doesn't even recognize its maker, God's son, when he shows up in the flesh. The world loves its evil deeds and prefers to hide them from God's light. It's a world enslaved to sin and ruled by the devil himself. And so the world stands in opposition against its creator. And that's the, that's what the world is here. 
It's a world in rebellion against God and His anointed one, Jesus Christ. You also see in, the, in this part that he, Jesus says the word hate a lot. The word hate is a very strong one, meaning to detest, abhor, persecute, and hatred. It suggests this fixed, ongoing hatred toward the followers of Christ. And so what do you think happens when the sovereign Lord reaches down in grace and redeems men and women from this rebellious world order and places them in his kingdom? So that they no longer belong to the world, they belong to Christ. They become his possession. They're ruled by grace and not by sin. They're, they're no longer held captive by the devil, but by sovereign love. That their, their conduct is transformed to look like Jesus' conduct. Their newfound love for holiness starts to expose and confront the world's evil deeds. What's going to happen? Very simply, the world views the followers of Christ as a bunch of traitors. Because those that are in Christ now belong to enemy ranks and the demonic powers and rival empire against Jesus hate this about the followers of Christ. They hate this because the world only loves its own, is what Jesus says. The world only loves the people that affirm its agenda. It loves the ones that affirm its idolatry, affirm its immorality, Affirm its self-autonomy. Affirm its tolerance of evil. You see, the world always opposes those who do not conform. And so if a person belongs to Christ, this person has changed sides. If you look at the text, put negatively, he or she no longer belongs to the world. Put positively, he or she now belongs to Christ. And so the cause for persecution is the disciples' change of status. And the world hates this because they hate Jesus and his message. So the world hates Jesus and those belonging to him. Secondly, you see that the world persecutes us or the followers of Christ for our gospel presence. If you look in verse 20 with me, it says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So again, we, we see a connection between what Jesus suffers and what those belonging to him suffer. He suffered persecution, therefore his servants will suffer persecution. But notice the positive addition at the end of verse 20. The positive addition says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours. And so this recalls a, a much bigger theme running throughout John's gospel. And that theme is this. Jesus is sent by the Father into a rebellious world. And he delivers a message that is divisive. It divides people. There's those who will reject him and those who will receive him. There's those who will refuse to believe in him and those who will believe in him. Those who keep loving the darkness and those who run to the light. Those who prefer the devil's lies and those who come to love Jesus' truth. 
And so Jesus enters into the rebellious world and people divide around him and his message. And so now he's saying that the, tr- that the same will be true of his disciples. Just like his father sent him with a message into the world, Jesus will send his disciples with a message into the world, and the world will hate them and divide around that message. Many will persecute them for what they said, but some will believe. Now, Jesus' teaching demands that we draw some conclusions here. If persecution is what happens... When authentic Christianity meets a world in love with itself instead of Jesus, why aren't some of us experiencing persecution at all? Now, I want to be careful here. Biblically speaking, not all Christians will experience the same degree of persecution. Moreover, the Bible tells us that according to God's wise and providential plans, severer forms of persecution are restrained in some areas more than others. So the question is not, why am I not experiencing the same amount or the same kind of persecution others may be? I'm also not asking the question so that you leave actively pursuing persecution. I'm also not asking the question so that you leave feeling guilty unnecessarily for not yet experiencing persecution. Because many of you in this room are being faithful to the Lord. You're walking in obedience. You're daily keeping step with the Holy Spirit. And you're following Christ daily. But your time of suffering just hasn't come yet. Rather, what I am asking is for us to consider whether the lack of persecution in our lives is because we look too much like the world. Are we busy trying to find a a comfortable spot between the extremes of a godly life and a sinful one? In other words, when, when we enter into people's lives, there's really no reason for them to divide around us. We're not really carrying a gospel presence into their lives. The offense of the cross is largely missing from our speech and our conduct. Our love tolerates evil instead of abhorring it and calling people out of it to follow Christ and His ways. And so there's really no reason for the world to persecute us if we look and act and speak just like they do. In his book, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin, which isn't his real name, he writes under a pseudonym to protect those that he's writing about, But in his book, after going through numerous testimonies from believers across the globe experiencing persecution, he ends up concluding like this. Satan's greatest desire is for the people of this planet to leave Jesus alone. Satan desires that we turn away from Jesus or that we never find him in the first place. If Satan cannot be successful at that, he desires to keep believers quiet, to diminish or silence our witness And to stop us from bringing others to Christ. It is that simple. Once we understand the nature of this spiritual battle and strategy of the enemy, we see clearly the role believers have been called to play. We also see the importance of our choices regarding witness and faithfulness and obedience. At the beginning every day, Christian, you choose. 
Believers who do not share their faith and live according to Jesus' commandments. Aid and abet Satan's ultimate goal of denying others access to Jesus. Our silence and the way we live makes us accomplices. Perhaps the question should not be, he writes, why are others persecuted? Perhaps the better question is, why are we not? That's a soul-searching word, and it lines up with what Jesus is saying here and the rest of the New Testament. If the evil, rebellious world loves you as its own, it's not going to persecute you. It's not going to hate you. But if you walk with Jesus and you speak of his cross and you live according to his commandments, the world will hate you. And so my question for us this morning is, are you having the same effect on the world that Jesus did in his earthly ministry? Does the world feel conviction over its sin when they're around you or do they feel all the more justified in committing it? Does the world find you strange, almost alien-like, when they look at your values and consider your way of life? Are you choosing to live in the radical ways in which love calls us to live? What would your neighbors, your co-workers, maybe your own family say is your highest love, your most valued possession? Would it be Christ? And you might think, well, this doesn't, I don't really, this doesn't matter. Well, let us heed the warning that John writes in 1 John chapter 2. If you love the world, then the, wor- then the love of the Father is not in you. Jesus said in John 7 that the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Is there enough antithesis to the world in your Christian witness? In your business practices? In your ethical decisions? Does the way you love people look different than the way the world loves people? Another way to ask it is, do you feel at home with the culture? Because belonging to Jesus means we also share in persecution. And to think that we shouldn't suffer for our belonging to Him is to put ourselves above Him. To put our agenda of comfortable church above His agenda of a suffering church. To put our desires for self-gratification above His desires for self-sacrifice. Mere church-going and outward professions of faith cost little But true Christianity, truly following Christ, always carries a cross. Dying to selfish desires, dying to worldly comforts, dying to the fear of man, dying to unbiblical notions of tolerance, all in an effort to see more of the glory of Christ made known. And that will mean we suffer. Why? Because the world hates Jesus and the world divides around our gospel presence just like it did around him. Thirdly, what we see in the text is that the world does not know the true and living God. You see in verse 21, but all these things they will do on account of my name because 
they do not know him who sent me. The hatred of Christ, the persecution of his followers is ultimately rooted in a world's ignorance of the one true God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. They don't know God. And that's the issue. That's the fundamental issue. People don't know God and their ignorance of God runs so deep within the world that they don't even recognize God when he shows up in the person of Jesus. This is what verses 22 through 24 are telling us. Jesus says that he, he came down and he came down and he spoke words and he performed works to reveal himself as God and the world rejected him. Look at what it says there in verse 22. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, these are his words, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me also hates my father. Why? Because they don't know him. If I had not done among them the works that that no one else did, so now we're talking about his works, his deeds, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. In other words, to reject God's revelation in Jesus Christ is to reject God himself and to remain guilty of unbelief. And this is how warped and depraved and blind the world is. God tells the world that he's going to show up. He then shows up. He tells the world he shows up. He does the work to prove he showed up and they still crucify him. They don't know God. And so he tells his disciples, this is the root of the persecution that you'll face. Is they don't know my father. And now when we think about this, it's very offensive to tell people that they have no access to God except through the revelation provided in Jesus Christ. That doesn't win friends. It doesn't influence people. It quite honestly makes them angry. And it makes them angry because you're calling into question everything they're about. When you call their God or God's false, you have just declared war on their worship. The gospel is offensive and there's no other way around it. It's offensive to those that are perishing. Why? Because they don't know God. So as we think about this, knowing the world's ignorance of God is this severe should also give us great patience with the world, especially since you and I were once in that same ignorance. So if they demonstrate cruel attitudes toward us, it's because they have no knowledge of God's love in Christ. If they seek to kill us for our testimony, it's because they have not yet experienced the forgiveness of sin in Christ. If they seek to kill us, it's because they have not yet, if they arrogantly mock us and ridicule us, it's because they do not yet know the love of God in Christ. And so as we go into the world, we show the same patience God showed us when we were ignorant of him. And the hope is that through our patient witness and our patient suffering, people have their eyes open to Jesus and come out of their ignorance and love and know God. And so I hope you don't miss this. Please listen to this. They don't know God. And so... There's a purpose in our persecution. 
Do, do you see it? There's a purpose in our persecution. And it is that they would know God. Which leads us to our final point. The world's hatred is not outside of God's control. The world's hatred is not outside God's control. We see this most clearly in the cross of Christ. You see also in verse 25 here in the text, it says, but the world, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's a quotation from Psalm 69, 4, which also happens to be a Psalm of David regularly applied to Jesus throughout the New Testament. So here's what hap- is what, here's what's happening. Jesus is saying that David's own suffering as Israel's king anticipated Jesus' suffering as Israel's kings. It's just that Jesus' suffering would be far superior. If it could be said of David, a faithful but still sinful king, that he was hated for no just reason, then how much more could it be said of Jesus, the faithful and sinless king, that he would be hated for no just reason? And Jesus was hated, and he went to the cross not because of sins he committed. He went to the cross because of sins that we committed. He suffered unjustly at the hands of hateful men so that you and I could find forgiveness and be delivered from the enslaving powers of sin, death, and the devil. And this is a deliverance that David could never deliver. And so what we see through this connection between Psalm 69.4 and Jesus' own just unjust persecution is that none of it was outside of God's control. He orchestrated everything. If you think about it for just a moment, God took the evilness of man for the death of his one and only begotten son so that you and I could be saved. It was all in his control and it was all a part of his plan. And so the same can be said of our persecution. None of it is outside of God's control. But he orchestrates it for the purpose of bringing others new life in Christ. And so the sufferings we endure or will endure are all orchestrated. They're all part of God's divine plan to win the world. Not through a prosperous church, but through a persecuted church church and so what's the conclusion the words Jesus shared with his disciples here came true and the disciples did not stumble all except John it appears died a martyr's death Jesus was hated and so were they They were not a part of the world order and they were obedient as they lovingly shared Christ to their death. And so this is the way that Jesus instructs his disciples. And so much more of the New Testament points toward the persecution of believers. So let me conclude with some closing remarks and applications for us. Number one, we should never conclude that the persecution of Christians 
means evil is winning. Jesus' own suffering on the cross and his resurrection stand as a testimony that such a conclusion is wrong. In the same way that God was sovereign over every evil in the death of his own son, he is sovereign over every evil that will come to us from a hateful world. And the gospel advances even in the midst of persecution. The gospel is always moving forward. It never takes a step back. It's always moving forward. God is always victorious. He is always victorious. And this brings us a confidence and hope. In the midst of a world that hates us for following Christ. Secondly, even though the world hates us, we must not withdraw. We are His ambassadors. And we have a mission to tell of His glory to all people, tongues, tribes, and nations. And in so doing, we will face opposition, rejection, And possibly even death. But church, all that the world threatens to take from you cannot compete with all that you have gained in belonging to Christ. So stand firm in the faith. Be bold and courageous. Don't withdraw out of fear. Lastly, in persecution, look to Christ. Look to Christ. He's our, he is our victory, which means that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you will face that you do not have the power of Christ in you to overcome. He's our victory over whatever comes our way. Even if you die, now you're in His presence. And people come to faith. He's not only our our victory, He's our deliverer. God has the power to deliver us, even in the middle of a world that hates you because of your love of Christ and because they hate Christ. Remember that God has the power to deliver you. And even if He doesn't, He's faithful. He's faithful. But look to Christ. He's our victory. He's our deliverer. And finally, He is our hope. He is our hope. God uses the persecution of His people for His glory and for His purposes. And so whatever persecution you endure for the sake of Christ, it will never be in vain. Never. Look to Christ. He's our victory. He's our deliverer. And He's our hope. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, 
How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, not anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. It is because of you, Jesus. That we have salvation. That we have a message to declare. And it is because of you, Jesus. That we can stand in the midst of a world that not only hates us, but hates you. But we know that our persecution, that whatever we may suffer for the sake of Christ, will not separate us from your love. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know the love of Christ... That you died, and more than that, as Paul says, you rose. Lord, I pray that this morning they would come to faith in you, that your spirit would draw them to yourself. And God, for those of us who are already believers in this room, I pray that you would help us to stand. Lord, that our obedience to you, our holiness, our distinctness from the world would lead others to know you as a loving father. So God, as we sing and as we respond to you, I pray that you would have your way. And it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together our song of invitation.